0: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham as we kick off yet another startling week. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Could there be another strike by the RMT? Apparently the guys have gone up to show their solidarity this morning at the Old Bailey with the Barristers. (laughs) I mean, the world has really turned on its head, hasn't it, when barristers and the RMT are standing together arm in arm on the picket line. I think some teachers have have popped up as well because, of course, uh, no point going to school anymore because you're not allowed to teach anybody anything interesting. Now, what we're going to do this morning, though, uh, is set out our stall for the week because, as you know, we like to have a sort of a theme. And my theme this week is this. Is there really... Some kind of crisis of confidence going on. Is there really a situation where people aren't spending any money? Are we just reading about it in newspapers and seeing it on certain television stations where they like to frighten the bejesus out of you? I was out at the weekend in several different places and it was rammed with people. People spending money, people sitting outside eating, drinking, enjoying themselves, people driving around in cars to a very large extent, uh, causing traffic jams all around. And I know we're talking about the south of England, not just London, but the south of England, Sussex, Kent, all those kind of places, loads of roadworks, loads of people out and about, lots of people spending money that apparently they don't have. So I want to hear from you this morning as to what you're seeing and what you're doing. Also, the ha- airports are around with people going on holiday. I thought we didn't have any money. I thought nobody could afford to do anything. I'm slightly puzzled by that. Ben Habib is here. We're going to talk about the G7 meeting currently going on, Boris Johnson's future, such as it is, and also, of course, where we go from here with all manner of things. Peter Hitchens is going to be along to tell us why tribalism is killing British politics and we'll never get anybody worth actually electing unless we change the system. 0344 499 1000 is the number. And, of course, the illegal migrant situation. Ben Habib's an expert in that. He'll have some views on it, I'm sure. Uh, You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here On the home of Common Sense, it is, of course, Talk TV. Welcome to the first of many, the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We forgot to mention, of course, uh, Wimbledon starts today, so the heat of summer is upon us. Glastonbury was on yesterday uh, and over the weekend. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is the G7 meeting. Now, if you can see it on the front page of The Times... A less diverse group of people, I don't think I could imagine. Uh, You've got Charles Michel, President of the European Council, never heard of him. Mario Draghi, Prime Minister of Italy for the next couple of days. Uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, the man that doesn't know the truth if it falls on him. He's from Canada. President Macron of France, who just lost 100 seats. Uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, the German Chancellor who likes paying a load of money to the Russians. President Biden, who can't ride a bike without falling off it. Um, Fumio Kishida the Prime Minister of Japan don't know no idea and Ursula von der Leyen President of the European Commission Uh, all with um, Boris Johnson of course the man who would rather not ever come back to Britain because everybody hates him that's a pretty good summation Ben of the G7 isn't it
2: it is a middle-aged bunch of well I I say middle-aged but actually Trudeau's probably at school isn't he he looks like he probably should be yeah (laughs) I
1: love that Trudeau has been very very sure about how Uh, women's bodies should not be invaded in any way by politicians, despite the fact that he made sure that everybody in Canada had to have their bodies invaded by politicians. By the
2: vaccine, absolutely. I mean, it's incredible. You know, I don't want to get involved in whether you you should or shouldn't be allowed to have an abortion. Abortion,
1: for me, is not a debate. We're never having it on this show. Yeah,
2: yeah, I don't want to have that debate. But the... The hypocrisy in the debate from Trudeau and people like him is self-evident.
1: Yes, absolutely extraordinary. So the G7, Boris Johnson starts it off with a little joke about getting your pecs out uh, to sort of Beat Vladimir Putin, which seems a
2: bit off color. Does Boris have pecs?
1: Well, he probably does, but I'm not sure that uh, he doesn't have to keep them in something, you know, <laughs> uh, in order not them to sort of flop about. But I mean, yeah. he's uh, he is much better on the international stage, than he is at home, isn't he? I think we can probably he say is. that
2: he is. He well, is. I mean, Boris is a fantastic campaigner, and mm. when you're abroad, by and large, what you're doing is campaigning. Yeah. You know, you're 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 banging the drum for the United Kingdom. Yeah. And Ukraine uh, is a perfect drum for him to bang while he's outside the uk and indeed when he's here because it gives him that international presence he can egg president zelensky on and actually there's no real risk to him from the electorate in the uk there's no policy he needs to make that can be shot down he's done a great job in ukraine don't get Mm. me wrong but it's a fantastic distraction from his primary obligation of running the United Kingdom. But I mean, he has
1: done a great job, but that may well be because everybody else has done such a poor job. Because at the beginning, the European Union were nowhere. France and Germany weren't even sure they wanted to get involved. I mean, Germany was promising to send a few hats, many helmets to uh, to the Germans. The French still wanted to negotiate with Putin. But the bottom line is, is that the war's still going yeah, it was on. a low bar. Yeah, the yeah. war's still going on. Ukraine is still a problem. Um, you know, all sorts of things, including car manufacturing, apparently, has been hit by it because loads of German car companies in particular use Ukraine as a base to produce all sorts of um, semiconductors and all kinds of other things. So yeah. the supply of new cars has apparently been... been there's been massive delay on it um and so all of the kind of not all of them but so many of the the problems that we've got in the cost of living crisis are still being caused by this ongoing war
2: yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean no one knew ukraine fed 600 million people a year until it was invaded no No one knew about the car manufacturing no one knew about the importance of its black sea ports until they were blocked right and I mean, it says a lot about Ukraine, but it also says about how finely balanced the global economic mm. system is. Yeah. And, you know, we've got this cost of living crisis now. And I'm absolutely certain we have that crisis because of lockdown. Mm. You oh, know, For sure. No question. You know, when we locked down, we threw a, a, a massive stone into this sensitive ecosystem mm. that is our global economy. Yeah. And it's terribly troublesome coming back from it. <laughs> if there's any lesson to take away from it is we must never ever locked down again yes it's a it was a disastrous
1: policy mm. and i think as we see more and more of the results of that policy i think more and more people will not allow themselves to be locked down again we're getting molly kingsley in later on um to talk about their new book about you know the kids being told they couldn't go to school and p- being kept away from school and, and the ongoing effects are still affecting many families in this country yeah. as a result of that because kids didn't go to school for and get, two it's years. going on
2: on and on and you could argue mike quite legitimately that the war in Ukraine is a, is as a result of lockdown because mm. it forced oil prices up because yeah. reserves were depleted. Yes. And with oil prices up, Putin can afford to finance his war. Mm. You know, so... Everything is so finely balanced yeah. that when you muck around with it, you set off, you know, it's butterfly wings, isn't it? You set off a sort of yes. tsunami And I at mean, it's funny because
1: Donald Trump, the man that was universally detested by the European Union and most European leaders, uh, got it right. He was he, the one that said Germany was over-dependent on he Russia.
2: Did. He sat in the European Parliament in 2018 and he warned Germany about its increasing reliance on Russian oil. Yeah. And the German MEPs laughed at him. He has a funny way of speaking, as we all know. So he comes across as, you know, perhaps not the sharpest sort of knife in the box. But he was absolutely right. Germany he resonates with ordinary people, which is what Boris Johnson does, funnily enough. You know, and even now, even now, with everyone fully aware of the importance of, you know, Ukraine being put back on the Mm. international trading map, Germany is still buying... Russian oil. Yeah. You know, it's contributed. Because they can't stop. They can't stop. They've contributed 40 billion euros Mm. to
1: Putin's coffers. It's massive. It's incredible. And I was hearing today and over the weekend that they might even have to consider blackouts in Germany in order to sort of somehow ration the gas that they've got because they want to stop buying it in from Russia. But if they stop immediately,
2: they literally won't have any. Uh, it, it was an absurd policy yeah. of Merkel's to turn her back on nuclear power and right. to sidle up with Russia. It's hard to believe, you know? isn't it,
1: that Angela Merkel only a few short years ago was considered to be this great visionary who was, you know, not only a brilliant politician, but also trained as a scientist, was brilliant about Covid, knew everything there was yeah. to know about integration of Europe. And then she's completely blown everything by her immigrant policy. Which yep. destroyed an and I'm lot sure of countries. I'm
2: sure facilitated Brexit. Absolutely. Yes, and she also facilitated
1: yep. the war in Ukraine. Actually, yeah. because it was she who first offered Ukraine membership of the EU. Yeah, and that 10 Putin. billion
2: euro loan, which really irritated yeah. Putin, because yeah, she so was thanks. trying to pull it into the EU. Yeah. Sphere of influence. So thanks, Angular. I mean, you've actually (laughs)
1: completely destroyed Western Europe in a way that nobody could have foreseen because that brings us nicely to the migrant crisis. We're talking 12,000. I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's probably double that. Yeah, who knows what the numbers are. Because there are so many people coming now because they think there might be a time limit on how they can come and when they can come. So they're coming in even bigger numbers, and many of them now are not even bothering with the border force. They're just getting off the boats and walking into Britain.
2: Yeah, and I mean, as I understand it, actually the French Navy are handing these people over to the British border force yeah. in an orderly fashion. Mm. They're being escorted to oh, the yeah. end of French territorial waters, and then we're giving them a free taxi, taxi yeah. ride. So, well, I know, watched
1: videos, I'm sure you did, just last week of um, one of these sort of over supplied dinghies but I mean they're more than dinghies they're they're huge big dirigible boats which are actually quite easy to, to, to use and, and yeah. not very dangerous to get into but they were being helped off those onto a border force boat literally you know by yeah. hand by border
2: force individuals, and then just brought into Dover. So, if the central foundation of the government's policy is to deter people from coming across, the first thing they've got to do is stop giving them a free taxi service. Yes, you know, you can't make the Rwandan policy work. You can't make you can't begin to make it work if you're actually facilitating these people coming across uh, our territorial waters. And you know, one of the things, one of the problems I have with the whole Rwanda policy is that it is not border control. Mm. The government has sold it as border control, but it isn't. No, It's trying to deal with people once they've breached our borders. Mm. It's, it, 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 it's too late by right. then. Then you've got the British judicial system against you, the European Court of Human Rights against you. You've got the cost of doing it against you. And then you've got all the optics of, no doubt, the inevitable human rights abuses that will yeah. be claimed to take place in Rwanda mm. once you get a deportee there. So massive hurdles after you've helped these people actually cross the channel in the first place. Yes.
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you are technically allowing them to board a Border Force vessel and you are then bringing them into port... You're in some way kind of part of the problem, aren't you? You're you, actually, you are you're part of the problem, assisting them
2: to break the law. So I had this brilliant idea, which I tweeted and got dumped on. Did you see my yeah, tweet? Yes, so I saw yours. Yeah, well, I, I heard, yeah. I, think I
1: heard you on Jeremy's show talking about the boats, like registered boats from Rwanda. Yeah. So
2: the reason border force apparently won't push these dinghies back into French waters because all the um, illegal migrants would... There's a risk that they would jump into the sea. Yeah. And then they'd have to be rescued. And right. once they're rescued, they're on British... Mm. They they benefit from British protection on British boats. Yeah. So why not have border force backed up by Rwandan boats? Yes. And if people wish to jump off their dinghies, they get rescued by Rwandan boats, yes. which in our territorial waters... On the boat themselves are still subject yes. to Rwandan law. And people
1: were ridiculing the idea because Rwanda yeah. doesn't have a coastline. Well, it doesn't mean it can't have boats, does it? Yeah, no. You, can, you don't need a coastline I mean, to own a boat. No,
2: and you don't need to have a direct line back to Rwanda. You could take them via Yemen, yeah. a country, for example, that isn't a member of the European uh, Convention of Human Rights, yeah. and fly them in from Yemen, or you right. could take them on bus and put them on train or whatever you want to do. Right. The point is, don't give them the protection of British law at the taxpayer's expense. No, I think that is absolutely the way forward.
1: We'll talk about the taxpayer's expense coming up Ben Habib is here uh, we want to take your calls as well because I'm asking the question for you what exactly is going on out there Benedict says this Mike I think it depends very much where you are there's a lot of overhype in the media it's almost like we are talking ourselves into recession in Wigan I'm noticing that pubs restaurants and the town centre are quieter than normal even at weekends well what's it like where you are Are shops actually closing down are people not going out because it's not like that in the south of the country as far as I can tell uh, from a very limited show over the weekend but I'm interested in this so I want i hear from you. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. Talk Radio. Danger. Slippery people. Uncomplicated life rubric. For hungry thought thinkers. It's Talk Radio, the home of common sense.
3: Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the first show of the week. There's loads going on. There's a G7 meeting. There's going to be a NATO meeting in Madrid, I think, tomorrow, uh, at which they're going to try and talk Turkey into letting some Scandinavian countries in. It's all kind of a bit macroeconomic for me. Uh, We're going to talk now about what I found to be the most extraordinary story of the weekend. Ben Habib is here. Prince of Wales accepting... Three million euros, that's two and a half million pounds in cash payments, including one suitcase which contained a million euros in notes. I mean, people walking around London with that kind of money from Qatar uh maybe more sort of um, regular than we know, but it
2: doesn't sound right to me. Well, it isn't right, is it? I mean... You know, the reason people pay in cash is because they want to avoid being able to be audited. Right. So you can't see where the money has come from. Mm. And for the prince's office to instantly declare that all checks were were made just doesn't ring true. It cannot be true. No. Because the point is you can't trace where cash came from. If it came through the banking system, yeah. you'd be able to know that this was legitimate or illegitimate, yeah. depending on where it came from. But cash, by definition, can't be traced back. And therefore, it is a deeply dodgy way yeah. to communicate. Well, it you reminds know.
1: me of... I mean, when I read the story, it reminded me of that scene in Godfather 2 uh, when Fredo's flying with the suitcase full of money to Cuba to hand it over to Hyman Roth uh, yeah. to start the casino <laughs> business. And he's going, you know, I was sitting with a million dollars in my seat. I couldn't deal with it, you know. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Somebody's yeah. put it on a plane, right, presumably carried it from Qatar because uh, the guy who had it was a former prime minister, I believe, um, and handed... I mean... Who in their right mind? Forget whether you're the heir to the throne, but who in their? I mean, if I was sitting in the Dorchester Hotel and the guy handed me a suitcase with a million euros in it, yeah, I'd be thinking, yeah,
2: what is This going doesn't on? seem right. No, great. Really. yeah, you'd be very concerned about yeah. it. and and it is a, it is a breaking of law. You know, if you, if you're suspicious of where the money came from, uh, you are potentially liable. So I think the I think the prince has been a bit.
1: He's been naive at, at yeah, best. Hasn't at the he? very least, he's been naive. Yeah. yeah. It really is very very yeah. strange. but what let's go back to Rwanda briefly because there is this sort of you know establishment um, way of thinking isn't there? where you've got people who, like the, like everyone that goes to Glastonbury, for example, I think you could probably encapsulate all of the people at Glastonbury um, and you would not find anyone there that voted for Brexit. You would not find anyone there that thinks the Rwanda plan is a good idea. You know, you would not find anyone there that doesn't support Zelensky. You know what I mean? There's just yeah. this kind of group the thing. The liberal you know? elite. Yeah, the yeah. liberal elite. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, one thing Lenny Henry was right about is that it is an incredibly white event. You know, you don't really see anybody there who isn't no. from West London, no. you know, from Putney yeah. or Richmond or something. And Prince Charles is part of that. You know, he goes out and goes, well, this is an appalling thing to do. It's clearly not an appalling thing to do because, as I've said many times before, people who complain that you're sending people thousands of miles to a place they've
2: never been, well, that's how they got here. Well, by definition, it can't be appalling because effectively what the British government is saying is you've got a choice between staying in France or going to Rwanda. So they've got got freedom of choice, if Mm. you like. You know, if they don't want to go to Rwanda, stay in France. But my problem with the Rwanda thing as you know Mike is that I think it was all optics it was designed to fail Mm. it was designed to make it look like the government was doing something and they were Mm. going to be prevented from doing it and then they would be prevented and then they could have all this thing about the European Convention of Human Rights which we're now having the European Court of uh, 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 Justice and you know this notion that we can leave the ECHR but of course we can't leave the ECHR everyone out there needs to listen to what I'm about to say we cannot leave the European Convention of Human Rights Why because we have signed up to it as a commitment in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement mm. and it is embedded in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. So we would have to break two international but treaties. Surely if
1: we rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol, Article 16 in the Northern Ireland Protocol, that
2: also is in breach of the Good Friday Agreement, isn't it? The, no, it isn't. I mean, the protocol breaches the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. The protocol is a fundamental breach of that agreement because it foisted a new constitutional setup mm. on Northern Ireland without cross-community right. consent, without any form of. So consent. they've already done that. Then they've, so they've already. I mean, the protocol is a fundamental. So I take the point you're making, mm. and of course, you can break international treaties. You know, treaties are not set in stone right. for a country to abide by in perpetuity. Yeah, exactly. they have to change when a country's needs mm. change, and. I wish the government had the courage to tear up both the trade and cooperation agreement and the protocol. Let's do it. Let's get on with it. You know, what are the EU going to do? They talk about a trade war. If they were going to have a trade war, Mike, they'd have to put a hard border on the island of Ireland. They would have to come forward and demonstrably do the opposite of what they've been saying is intolerable. Yeah. You know, they would have to actually do the intolerable. Right. You know, they've they've been telling us we can't have custom checks.
1: Well, that's the thing. And I mean, what we seem to have here with this particular government, and I don't say just Boris Johnson, I say the government, is that they move from one sort of stone to another but they never get to the other side of the river. You know, we've got now, for example, on the front page of the Telegraph, Biden to block PM's answers to the food crisis because yeah. he's now moved on to, oh, let's forget about the wilding uh, mandate and let's grow more of our own food. But, but well, that's on, great. I mean, you still haven't solved the, the fuel crisis. You still haven't given anybody any money back. I mean, they talk about giving pensioners 10%. They talk about handing out money to people who are less well off and, you know, giving giving them council tax rebates. But that's not making any difference to people. is no. it? No.
2: And let, let's talk about that for a second. I I want to go back to Rwanda and Northern Ireland, but let's talk about the handout of money. Mm. He had a choice between slashing fuel duty, slashing VAT, which are tax cuts, which this nation desperately needs, which is traditional conservative ideology, and actually giving people money. Mm. And he went for giving people money. That which is, is a mistake. It be? is a mistake. It's that inbred tax, borrow and spend mentality, mm. which has gripped the, the modern Conservative Party. And it's got to break away from it. It's got to understand that people must be given the freedom of choice of how they spend their money. Yeah. But and they must have money put in their back pockets by cutting taxes. If they don't want RMT out striking, if they don't want British Airways, the NHS teachers and now the barrister's. Everyone out striking. Yeah. What they should do is reduce taxes. It's the e- you don't solve the cost of living crisis and the inflationary impacts of that by increasing wages. You yeah. do it by cutting costs. Right. And the sharpest and quickest way to cut costs is by cutting taxes and by cutting fuel costs. Absolutely.
1: momentarily, Because, I mean, that is fueling literally fueling everything else. I mean, the barristers, apparently I was listening to an interview this morning, are actually rejecting a
2: 15 percent pay rise. Fifteen percent. Yeah. Apparently is not good enough for them. Well, you know, I, I haven't looked at the trajectory of their wages or earnings over the last 12 years. But they're if you, claiming that they're down about 20-odd percent. Yeah. But and, even so. But even, Mike, they might be. You know, when you look at the performance mm. of the British economy over the Tory government since 2010... It is dire. Yeah. You know, we've had GDP go from two trillion in twenty ten to two point two trillion now. Hmm. Meantime the US has grown by fifty percent. If you look at public sector wages in this country, they've gone up by five percent on average since twenty ten. Inflation in that period, excluding the current spike has been about twenty five percent. So you've had net real loss in net wages of twenty yeah. percent over a twelve year Tory government. People are going so to. So where's all the get- money?
1: Where's all the money gone? Where has all the money that they've collected in taxes gone? I believe it to have gone to ridiculously kind of over. Filled civil service jobs, ludicrous amounts going to the NHS, which is clearly uh, as about as inefficient yeah. as you can get, and a get. lot
2: of it wasted. And we're about to well, spend... and wasting the rest, as uh, well, the George know... Best joke used to say. <laughs> and 1.4 trillion pounds we're now committing to the net zero oh. agenda.
1: 1.4. Surely to golly, he's got to jump off that at some point, but it doesn't it, seem like he's ever going to. And
2: that too is bait into the trade and cooperation yeah. agreement, where yeah. on a, we cannot regress from our commitment to net zero by 2050. The 1.4 trillion, let's get. Let's just think about that number for a second. I know when you bandy about mm. big numbers, it's hard to get them into your head. Several holdalls full of uh, Qatari <laughs> cash. Yeah, that do Prince Charles handsomely. Yeah. No, that is the equivalent, virtually the equivalent of all corporation tax re- take by yeah. the government every year between now and 2050. Yeah. The burden on the economy is massive. It, it, put another way, it represents 70% of our national debt. Mm. How, how can the nation afford that when we've already got this cost of living crisis? And make no mistake, that 1.4 trillion burden will fall squarely on the shoulders of the working and middle classes. Yep. It's them who will pay the price. It won't be the rich. The rich can afford to get new forms of heating for their house yes the rich can afford higher fuel taxes the rich can afford a brand new tesla it's not going to hit them it's going to hit the working and middle classes the very people that boris johnson keeps saying he wants to level up well you do not level up by instituting a policy that levels down Mm. their their wealth it just doesn't make any
1: sense at all it doesn't make any sense at all ben habib thank you very much indeed fascinating stuff very very high brow here at uh, talk tv this morning we don't normally do that but we did it for you today uh, just to show you how good we are this is talk tv welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk tv with you all the way through until one o'clock ian collins will be here jeremy kyle will be here of course we've got an entire A panoply of shows coming up this evening as well. Uh, Tom Newton done with the news desk. Piers Morgan from eight o'clock. We've got the talk from nine o'clock. I'm on that a little bit later on uh, in the week. uh, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, to be precise. But what about the big story of yesterday? Sunday Times splashed with their story. An extraordinary story, really, when you think about it. About Prince Charles, the heir to the throne. The man who's literally been out in Rwanda... Uh, waving the flag for Britain because he's about to be probably the man that steps into the fray when the Queen decides that, you know, she can no longer really fulfil all of her duties. What we've got is the heirs of the throne being given millions and millions of pounds from a sheikh in Qatar, right, the former Prime Minister, I believe he is, not least in some bags from Fortnum and Mason and not least in a holdall. 1 million euros alone in a holdall. Somebody was asking me this morning, how big is that? And I was actually thinking, you can actually get a million euros if you've got for 500 euro notes. It's not It's not that many little packages of money. We've all seen the... Um you know, the various shows and movies where they smuggle money around and cash and you can actually have a million dollars probably um, in a attache case. But let's talk to Alan Mendoza, executive director at the Henry Jackson Society, because charity commission people are now saying they're going to have a look into this to see what is actually going on. But Alan, uh, very good morning to you. It's good a morning, very Mike. strange way to be doing business, isn't
3: it? It, it's utterly bizarre i mean the idea that uh millions of euros are being casted around in cash around london uh being handed over personally to the principle of a charity is just extraordinary yeah. to sort of contemplate what's gone on here um and it you know obviously raises all kinds of questions about charity governance about the nature of the donation about the donor so much uh revealed by this story and it's just incorrect to say that it's an irrelevancy because it happened years ago
1: yeah
3: uh we need to you know understand exactly how this donation came about why was it paid in such an unusual way surely he had money by the way he could wire in somewhere it 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 makes no sense this story at all well as ben habib just said to me the only reason you would hand over that kind
1: of amount of money in cash is to make sure that it wasn't traced by anybody who wanted to tax it or to or to ask a question of where it had come from
3: yeah i mean it's it's bizarre from that perspective look the sheikh is fairly controversial he's been named obviously um in the panama papers the pandora papers we know all about you know the inferences of that um but it, it, it does seem strange that the heir to the throne here who you know who obviously is heavily involved with numerous of his own charities would think this was a sensible way to accept money from anyone let alone someone uh, from a foreign country.
1: Yeah and I mean I'm sort of reminded of that session in um, I think it was Zurich wasn't it when they decided to award the World Cup first to Russia and then to Qatar and all those Qatari gentlemen jumped up punching the air um, and I have to feel now whether or not there were sacks of um, holdalls full of euros going around there?
3: Well, there's long long been the suggestion this was not a fair process. Um, if you speak to those involved in the various bids to discover exactly what happened, they will give you chapter and verse on what they say happened and uh, clearly Qatar was a most unusual choice for a World Cup as is evidenced by the fact we're holding it in winter rather than summer because of course it's just impossible to hold it at the usual time uh, and that's not of course to mention Qatar's lack of uh, uh, football prowess.
1: And Well not only lack of football prowess but rather unusual kind of, uh, sort of views on, on lots of other things as well. Not least uh, you've got the problem of their um, their reaction to to, to to gay marriage and to even being gay, it's apparently illegal in Qatar. We're told it's going to be a very very diverse and inclusive world cup but well, i'm not quite sure how that's going to work they've also been responsible for the deaths of uh, dozens and dozens if not thousands of um, migrant workers who have come in to help build the stadiums you know and they've also got a massive grip have they not into london's property market
3: yes in fact uh, uh, the Sheikh was responsible for much of that uh, he, he was in charge of the sovereign wealth fund basically that bought up large swathes of london uh, in the first decade of this century. Mm. So they've got that clear sort of influence there. And you're quite right to point out there were, you know significant human rights concerns around this World Cup, around the country itself, its treatment of migrant workers, how it uh, treats uh, minorities. And of course, it's, it's you know, frankly, dodgy foreign policy views as well, uh, where Qatar has, of course, backed um, the al-Nusra front, the al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria in the past. It's meddled uh, in the Palestinian uh, conflict. This is not a particularly, you know, kind of friendly country even if we count it you know as a somewhat lukewarm ally
1: yes and i mean it's the one place is it not on the sort of uh, the, in the gulf which is looked upon rather suspiciously by saudi arabia because they see qatar as a sort of you know ally of the iranians ally of the people that don't particularly get along with the saudis and it's all a bit complex i know to cover in five minutes but but i mean they're not the world's they're not even the middle east's favorite country
3: no, not at all. Though it's kind of difficult to work out who is the Middle East's uh, favourite country. <laughs> but um, but you know, on a real on a, on the note, you're quite right. Qatar has allied itself to some of the worst regimes in. Uh, the the Middle East and it's uh, attempted in various parts to throw its uh, you know its wealth around uh, through its control of Al Jazeera of course which uh, uh, is notable for not criticising Qatar itself but criticising everyone else in the region um, despite there being plenty to criticise in Qatar and the relationships with Iran the relationships with Turkey uh, the relationships with various uh, you know kind of uh, uh, terrorist groups this is you know not a this is not a country uh, who has, as I said, endeared itself to us uh, in recent years or to its neighbours. No. And that's caused diplomatic uh, chaos. No,
1: I mean, they're in the Shard as well, I think, I'm, not, I'm right in saying, amongst other uh, places that they... That's correct, Because I think Al, correct, yeah. Al Jazeera's office, I think, in London is still in the Shard. Um, so it's a remarkable thing. But does this also point to, to what we all suspect as well, Alan, that there are, in various uh, shapes and forms... Large um, amounts of money being shipped in and out of London, often in cash, often in suitcases, uh, often from places where uh, they'd rather you didn't ask where it came from.
3: Well, this has been a constant theme, hasn't it, in recent uh, weeks? As we were discovering, for example, the flow of Russian money into the country, how this has been operating. Now we're seeing the flow of Middle Eastern money, how this can sometimes be operating. That there are grave concerns about how London's become, if you like, a soft touch uh, for this kind of activity. Now, you know, we hasten to add that we obviously don't know. The provenance of this donation, um, there is no immediate suggestion that anything's, you know, been done wrong in terms of where the money's come from. In fact the the Prince's charities have said they vetted it and there was nothing wrong with it. So, you know, that that's something that'll have to be investigated clearly by the uh, by the charity. Well regulator. I mean I suppose they would say that, wouldn't they? Well, they would, but I, I look. Let's put it this way: if you get if you get a million you know euro donation in cash, you better be damn sure where it comes from if you're a registered charity in this country, because yeah. of course it is a charitable uh, it's a charity commission uh, uh, thing to look at straight away. So one would assume I'm going to assume that there is. You know, some validity. They did check the donation out. They were able to work out where it exactly held from and why it was being delivered in cash. That'll no doubt come out in this investigation. But um, it's an unusual thing to have happened, that's for sure. Uh, It's not something that's recommended practice for any charity. And it seems particularly odd given the method of transfer from one, if you like, leader to another.
1: Well, it also makes you wonder a little bit, does it not, about the sort of the virtue signalling that goes on in this country from various groups of people um, who are quite happy to accept money uh, from a place like Qatar? Well,
3: yes, quite right. So, um, it, it, you know, this is, it's obviously, as we've discussed, it's obviously a country where there are grave concerns about aspects of uh, human rights, about its foreign policy, about its true, the true nature of what it's yeah. trying to do, um, it, and whether those are in, if you like, uh, the UK's uh, best interests. And yet we're seeing, you know, large transfers of money in this way coming in. Um, I think, you know, the time is right, frankly, for some kind of uh, law to examine how, you know, anyone receives money, from, particularly charities receive money from uh, certain, you know, kind of autocratic places yeah. outside of the UK. We need to look at this carefully and work out what is going on in the, in, in, in the money trail.
1: And on the basis that there's no such thing as a free lunch, I imagine there's no such thing as a million euros
3: in a hold all either.
1: I mean, presumably you want something in return for that, don't you?
3: well there are many reasons why people you know donate to charities i'm not going to speculate as to what might have been the reason no, it might simply have been recognition of doing a good thing i mean let's be let's be frank about this the prince's charities do do some very good work they do. obviously um and it may simply be a way of going right i'm supporting one of your things and, you know maybe down the line you'll support one of my things i mean there's that sort of you know inference always isn't there in such large donations well i think
1: that's the trouble isn't it listen good to talk to you alan thank you very much indeed alan mendoza the executive director of the henry jackson society i'd have to say uh, with all due respect to prince charles the heir to the throne um i don't think i'd be accepting a million euros in a all in a hotel lobby uh, from somebody from qatar without realizing what was going on would you this is a Talk TV, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you too. I hope you don't mind me referring to you as a pessimist. Not I'm, at all. I know the you, world's greatest pessimist. I know. The, the I know you
0: revel in the idea. Of, that well, that, I, I it's the key to happiness. I, don't know. You, <laughs> I don't know how you optimists <laughs> manage to get from one day's end to, to the next.
1: It is extraordinary. Um, occasionally, I do. I had a very odd thing—not an odd thing, but it, one of those things that happens from time to time. I couldn't find my car keys anywhere. Yes. And I'm sure that they're somewhere, but I just don't know where. Fortunately, I had a spare set. Yes. So I didn't know if they would work, but they did work. But it's this kind of nagging the
0: thing to do is to buy some expensive replacement car keys and then you will find the old ones. Yes, that's a, a very good idea. You, I said, whenever I lose a book, yeah. uh, I, after a few days of searching hopelessly, I buy, buy a <laughs> replacement copy and then the old one. I'm, slightly, I'm slightly. Where uh, it wasn't before. Yeah,
1: course. I'm slightly. Because I'm convinced that I've thrown things out without knowing. Um, and I've got a feeling I may have thrown them out. Yeah. You know, when you kind of... When in the days when I used to smoke? Well, this is
0: the onset of doom anyway. I think I, it is.
1: It's the onset of, of some kind of dementia. But there was a time, when I, even when I was younger, when I used to smoke, I'm pretty sure I've thrown ashtrays away. Just <laughs> instead of emptying them, you just put the whole thing in the bin and then you empty the bin. Yes.
0: Had you been doing anything
1: else as, apart from
0: smoking at the time?
1: Um, well, I'm, you can be distracted. Yeah, you know okay. when I you're distracted. Be. Yeah. Um, and this is how I lost one of my briefcases. And I'm pretty sure I put it down next to the car, got in the car and drove the car away without putting it in the car. OK, the other good thing is putting it on top of the
0: car and then drive that,
1: away. Yeah, my father did that once with an, an AA fun. book when we were off to Europe on Lots a year, summer days. holiday, and yeah. we got to Dover and realised we didn't have the AA book. Wow. And in those days, there was no sat-nav, there was no way yeah. of buying any other kind of atlas. Yeah. So we just had to drive around Europe without any kind of map at all. Well, we're very, all very lucky Luckily, that we got back. Luckily, he'd been in the RAF, so he'd started using the stars. <laughs> <laughs> But he was. A so, bit, so you bit, got you got a hamburger, right? He was a bit eccentric. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a long story. But let's talk about the the, uh, the 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 tribalism that you wrote about the weekend. Yes. Because two big by elections, neither of which really resulted in anything other than what you thought would happen.
0: Well, I, I used to spend a large part of my life reporting on by elections mm. uh, from Bermondsey to Darlington to yes. Chesterfield when they were they were thought to be big news. This is when the actually when the the party. System seemed to be about to shift when the social Democrats you remember David Owen Shelley yes, Hayes, the Jones, gang of Ford yeah uh, and Bill Rogers all got together. There the, the really did seem to be a genuine move away from mm. labor yeah, and it was therefore quite exciting in its in its way, but the funny thing was how the the political party system got together and squeezed it out, yeah and Margaret Thatcher saved the Labour Party uh, uh, something that, that is still not widely enough known right. she in the Tory manifesto. Of, I think, 87, there was a proposal which would have deprived the Labour Party of trade union funds. It would have forced the unions to require people to opt into to to giving to the Labour Party. And the Labour Party General Secretary at the time went to her and said, uh, if you do this, then what you will do is you will almost certainly destroy the Labour Party. Uh And what will happen is then you will be thrown out of office by the Social Democrats. Yeah. Uh, But if by any chance it doesn't work out like that and we ever get into power again, we will do the same to you. We Mm. will make it impossible for you ever... To raise funds from business again, right. so she gave up, right. and that was the moment at which the the Labour Party was saved, and the and and, Bla- and Blairism became a possibility. If yes. she hadn't done that, we could have genuinely had a revolution in British politics in the in, in, in the in the eighties and nineties, which might have changed things very substantially. It
1: might well have done, because because of course, ironically, when Blair became the the leader of the Labour Party, that was the beginning of the end. Of the trade unions having as much influence as they used to you know,
0: have. Part of the reason they lost influence was they were so much smaller, uh, and they were so much smaller because the industries in which they existed had by and yes. dis- disappeared. Mm. Uh, and then, obviously, there was the long period of uh, Lord Levy, Lord Cashpoint, as yes. you know, raising
1: non-trade union money for labor. And I noted the other day that he was back in business. Well, do you know, I, funnily enough, I, by complete coincidence, I, I saw him last week because I was in the House of Lords, having yeah. lunch with Claire Fox. And as we were finding our way out through some internecine way, which was the only way she well, knew a building a, site now, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah, so there was a load of people sort of being led in to be shown around, and he had about five or six people with him. And mm-hmm. I suddenly thought, oh, I hadn't seen him for he's a
0: while. Back. He's back, he's which is interesting. uh, It's a sign that the the Blairites have decided to put all their muscle behind Keir Starmer, Mm. uh, which could make a difference. Well, it
1: could, but except Keir Starmer seems to be sort of slightly losing his authority. Well, you
0: can put all your muscle behind a good candidate, and you can put all your muscle behind an indifferent candidate. And, of course, if it's a good candidate, it'll work. Because it
1: still seems very confused in the Labour Party. We saw Diane Mm. Abbott at the weekend shouting uh, from the rooftops about the strike and why she was in support of it. And then we saw David Lammy, yesterday saying that it was wrong to strike and you're kind of going well where are you exactly well
0: they're here? nowhere and this is the whole problem with oh. them it. it has been so for a long time i mean, labour is in is in a very very serious case and labour was probably more badly damaged than anybody else by the referendum mm. Because what happened at the referendum? You, we've talked about Gillian Duffy, the woman yes. Gordon, Gordon Brown called the bigot. Yes. Uh, she she, she symbolised a type of Labour voter, mm. very much you know, pro trade union, pro uh, pro welfare state, very very much old fashioned, 1945 yeah. Labour people, uh, but not really all that keen on mass immigration. No. and they voted Labour loyally, and for many pro- working class people feel that yeah, way. Exactly. They voted Labour loyally for decades. Yeah. And the fascinating thing about the Leave campaign, it, it was those voters uh, who, who actually delivered the Leave majority. It was, uh, I, I realized what was going to happen quite about halfway through the, uh, the referendum campaign when a, a, a bus driver said to me, uh, everybody at my bus depot uh, is is
2: going to vote to leave. Mm. And I thought, this
0: Happened, yeah, and uh, and from then on, I was certain that Leave would would win. It, yeah. it was a huge labour in, internal Labour Party revolt, yeah. and a lot of those people have never quite got uh, decided to go back. No, they'd, they'd be much keener on trade unions, uh, for instance, than the, the, the than what they would. Which is why the unions are Yes,
1: and that's why they've got it so wrong. It seems to me that the Labour Party have lost their way because they don't any longer have a core sort of support because the people who actually believe the things that they hate were their core cool support but aren't anymore.
0: Well, t- to a great extent. I don't think the Labour Party could could, could get a, a national majority again. Of course, the other thing is they've been massacred in Scotland. Yes, yeah. have the Tories, and right. that's, that, that's made a huge difference. But the Tories have a similar problem. Mm. And for, for many, many years, their, their local associations have been dying out. Uh, they have real problems in by-elections mm. getting anybody to do all the leafleting and knocking on doors that's necessary because there's nobody there no. anymore. And the, the party is, is, is empty. And it's it's perfectly obvious to anybody who looks at it that it's not a remotely conservative no. party. So And yet they still vote for it. Mm. And people say to me, oh, well, why don't you stand for parliament? I say, well, because you wouldn't vote for me. Right. There, there is no instance of a genuinely independent candidate winning a seat at a general election. Mm. And people say, well, what about Martin? Bell? I said, Martin Bell won in that. You remember that? He was the
1: debate? anti-Sleaze candidate. Well, yes, he? but he also, the, the Labour Party and the Liberal
0: Democrats withdrew yes. on his behalf. Mm. I promise you, I, and i absolutely, totally confident of this. If I stood for Parliament, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats would not withdraw no. to make way for me. It's no, they just wouldn't. not going to happen. So I, and, and people would then, general election time comes, They
1: uh, by elections, they have a sort of holiday. But general yeah.
0: election time comes, they go back into tribal.
1: And I, I mean, you know, and also if you did win and you were the sole independent in the in the in the parliament, you would have literally there's no nothing, power. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do. I interviewed Bernie Sanders years ago when I worked in America when he was running to be the first independent. Um, Senator for Vermont. I and mean, he only won. And he got into, into into the Senate in Washington, DC, and he and he managed to do absolutely nothing in the years that he worked there. And you know, he made, he ran for president and all of that. But as an as an independent with yeah. some rather unusual views, he couldn't get anything done. You no,
0: know, all all, all uh, parliaments and senates are all about making deals with the others, mm. and that's why that's why political parties exist and always will exist. The problem yeah. with this country is it has two dead political parties, Labour and, yeah. and, and, the, and the Tories, which are kept alive by state funding. There's a lot more state funding mm. In opposition than people realise, and by uh, by dodgy billionaires, and if 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 either of them were forced to rely on going out in the streets and rattling tins, yeah. nobody would give them anything. Yeah. But because of the these and also because of the broadcasting rules, which oblige the BBC to give huge coverage to existing parties yes. and don't give them any real incentive to give new up and coming parties mm. a fair crack, uh, the the system is frozen, and it's very hard to shift it. But if we could have two. I've said always, basically a, a Daily Mail party and a Guardian party, yes. in which all the real issues which divide people came mm. up. I think it would transform our politics.
1: Well, there's certainly no doubt the Tory party, as it is now run by Boris Johnson, is not at all conservative. And many people now tell me that they're never going to vote Conservative again. On the, on the well, basis they say of that. that now.
0: But you see, when it comes to it, are they going to vote for a Keir Starmer party no, or, or let a Keir Starmer No. Will they vote party? Lib Dem though? Well, possibly. But then again, it, it's it's the, the Lib Dems are pretty plainly operating in an unstated alliance. I mean, look if, if the if if look at the Labour vote in the Tuason Honiton by-election, it collapsed almost mm. to nothing. Now, why yeah, they the, lost why, the deposit. Why, why was that? Well, we're told it was tactical voting. Well, yes, but no-one's ever going to admit to it, are they? No. Because it's it's dangerous to admit to it. Mm. But people are going to spot that the, the Lib Dems are, are, are pretty much holding hands with Keir Starmer. And yeah. the other thing that Keir Starmer's never really been questioned about is what is his attitude towards the Scottish Nationalists? Yeah. If, if if he gets uh, an, an, enough seats in England to form an alliance mm. with the Scottish National would he staff, do it? Westminster majority. Well, if he doesn't need to do anything formal, but would he work with mm. them? And how, how much is he prepared to give them to get it? Well, quite. But if he David, won't say this, I bet he doesn't say this before the election, but people will suspect, won't they, that, that, a, that
1: a Labour victory, whatever form it takes, uh, will mean the breakup of the Union. Yes, yes. and if they are as we believe, you know, determined to get the Tories out, if that's the only way they can do it, then surely that's what they will do.
0: Well, then what would be the point of getting the Tories out if, if by doing so you, you actually give the left many of the things it's always wanted? Yes, no, I agree. It, I mean, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it's, it's what the great pity is that we didn't sort this out back in now, what, uh, a dozen years ago. Yeah. Uh, when the Tory party could easily have been chucked in the bin and mm. carted away for for, uh, for to landfill, yes,
1: and replaced with something better. For but crimes much, against
0: conservatism much much harder now.
1: Exactly right. Uh, Peter Hitchens is here. We're talking about a great many things. We'll be doing more. Uh, we'll take more of your calls as well. Coming up shortly after this on Talk TV.
3: Nationwide by your side. Talk radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens is here with me. Uh, you were writing about uh, this tribalism at the weekend, but you mentioned this amazing sort of um, plot which I suppose, for those of us who are interested in politics, you think is going on all the time because I, I won't say who I get them from, but I get a lot of messages from Tory MPs who are attempting to either, one, influence me, or two, tell me things that are going on it behind is. the scenes in uh, in the Tory party in Westminster. Um, and how unpopular Boris Johnson is and how, you know, it's only a matter of time. And they, this, this sort of relentless what, plotting goes on. What, what else have they got to do? The <laughs>
0: I mean, they, they have, they, they're under-occupied people, I think.
1: Yes, I think so. They, a lot of stuff just sitting
0: on committees voting the way the whips tell them to do all yeah. the time. Or, or, or answering letters about people. But there must trains.
1: be like more failed plots in politics than, than in yeah. Any this other, one, this, any one,
0: other line this of one was a very narrow thing. It was a, a by-election in Darlington where the the Labour candidate was expected to lose, and I use expected probably in both senses of the word. I don't think he knew he was expected to lose, mm. but everybody else did. Yeah. And then he won. Right. And if he'd lost, then there would have been this great putch against uh, poor dear old Michael Heseltine, who was then the Labour leader he would have been heaved out right. by the by the brutal figure of Dennis Healy. Yes. And imagine an election Healy campaign... Healy would have been good, wouldn't he? Imagine an election campaign with Margaret Thatcher on one side yeah. and Dennis Healy on the other. Mm. It, it, it would certainly have certainly been fun. Yeah. And it would have been a lot closer than that Night. Your
1: foot was a, a sort of pathetic character well, in the end. I mean, he was not a, was, a bad guy, but he was... not
0: a bad guy, And he but by then he was... he, 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 he You know, all that doddering and, uh, mm. was the result of a very bad car crash. Yes.
1: I used to see him on Hampstead Heath regularly because yeah. I used to live up there, and you know he, he genuinely couldn't walk very well. No,
0: he was, he was, he was a, a personally kind uh, and an intelligent person, but he, he could never really, it was an act of extraordinary mm. knowledge to imagine they could ever have, have won an election with him as leader, but they, that was the last chance. But and I if suppose. If that by election had gone the other way, then mm. we would have seen a wholly different political scene. In this country.
1: But then, yeah, because had that happened, perhaps you'd never have seen the rise of Kinnock and Blair and all that crowd. A
0: lot of things would not have happened. But mm. he, here's, he, here's the thing that, that's an un, un, unusually important result of a by election. Yes. Uh, which, which in fact didn't happen. Mm. Most by elections tell you almost nothing about what will happen at the next general
1: election. Well, I don't think you can draw any conclusions from either of those results, really. I mean, it means absolutely nothing. No,
0: I everybody now is saying, well, you know, Johnson must go. Johnson must go. Well, okay, but the, the the question which then comes back to all of the Tories who say Johnson must go is, all right, who have you got?
1: Mm. And <laughs> no, they haven't so got anyway. No, what, what have they got? But that's the thing. But also, after a while, you keep saying the same thing over and over again with with the same result. I, he doesn't go. Then he's never going, is he? I mean, well,
0: I mean, there is always the possibility that he loses a general election and 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 goes then, yeah. but then. But will he or won't he? Everybody thought John Major would lose the nineteen ninety two election, including that. John Major. Yeah, <laughs> with reason. Yes. But but I know it, it didn't happen. No. So who who knows? I I don't know. It's 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 not my business. So my. It's an intrusion into private mm. grief for me. I don't but
1: we now find ourselves in the midst of. I find. I mean, more and more. Whenever you come in here, it's 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 more ridiculous. It seems to me the G7 summit looks like just some kind of you know over privileged boys club where they just stand around trying to look good in pictures and basically say nothing of any merit at all
0: the word is boondoggle I yes mean, it, it, it's, it's just an occasion where they all they all browse and sluice together yeah. at, our, at our expense and I suppose there may be some advantage in mm. having met each other personally uh, but that's about it uh, but it gives it, it gives the, the the people who report on that kind of thing something to do yeah doesn't
1: it? And I heard um, Ursula von der Leyen last night on uh, some radio station I was listening to talking about how they're going to give a load of money now to developing countries in order to stop the influence of China. And you go, well, one, you haven't got any money, and two, exactly how are you going to make that happen?
0: Yes, it is interesting, isn't it, especially given... The Chinese are much better at donning out money. Yes, than we are.
1: Well, what they do is they build infrastructure well, no, with their that, money. So,
0: but no, they 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 aren't particularly fussy about. It. They don't demand uh, commitments to to democracy and justice and freedom or anything like that. They they just just give them a load of money. They just find the kind of people who are going to take money from them and and give it to them. And And then, then a few years later, Mm. they discover what the conditions are and they find out that China is permanently squatting on their society. I went to Africa and went around a bit of this. It's it's astonishingly clever the way they do it Mm. and people don't realise just how much their countries are being bought.
1: Yes. I'm told there's a Pacific island and I can't tell you the name because I don't remember it, but somewhere sort of in the South Pacific where... Mm they went to suggest that they could help with tourism for that island. And they've now ended up basically building a military base um, where a lot of their ships go. Um, yeah. So it was meant to be for cruise ships, but in the end that didn't work out so well. But they yeah. built this whole sort of docking area, which is now a stopping off point for, yeah, for the Chinese they're Navy. They're quite good at building
0: almost entirely new islands yeah. in, in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah.
1: It would be very handy when, when they're huge, great aircraft
0: carriers, which mm. they're now building and get going. Yeah, yeah but, absolutely. They, but they are, they're, they're, they're very determined. If anybody else was doing it, it would be called imperialism. Yes. Because but it's Chinese not. the Chinese do it, it's they get away with
1: it. Now, I said at the beginning of this show that I wasn't going to do the abortion debate because I don't know that I want to. But you want to have something to say about
0: well, it? Well, yes, I had a, a certain amount of, um, of uh, how should I put it? Um,
1: Vitriol? No, back and forth this
0: weekend because I decided that uh, I often get people on Twitter uh, saying uh, their basic line of attack when I say anything. Like it's, oh... Why did the wrong brother die? About my late brother Christopher, which is because, particularly you know, unpleasant like because they say it all the time. I mean, it's, 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 it's an illustration how feeble their arguments are. Yeah. And I, I, it was sort of, sort of, it was partly in the back of my mind when the abortion thing came out. Well, I will get out an article, it's actually an interview that my brother gave mm. uh, some, I must be more than a dozen years ago now, yeah. obviously, about abortion in which he said, I'm against it. Mm and gives perfectly good left-wing reasons for being against abortion. Now, you don't hear this very often. There was a very, very articulate American libertarian leftist called Nat Hentoff Mm. uh, who ran a a blog called Sweet Land of Liberty in which he also uh, made the left-wing case against abortion. But it was rare. Uh, But it it surprised quite a lot of people to understand that it's a more nuanced subject than they think. Of course it it is. It's always puzzled me. Uh, that it's such a big feminist thing. Mm. Because certainly as my memory in the 1960s, when the abortion laws in this country were being liberalized, Mm. abortion was not made legal in this country in 67. It was already legal. It was made more legal. But I seem to remember the people who were most relieved when that went through were irresponsible men. Yes. Uh, who always seem to me to be the biggest beneficiaries right. for me? Well,
1: the, like all things, it's become an hysterical argument now, hasn't it? And you cannot have a sort of reasoned argument with almost anybody about it. You know, the, the, the mantra that America has banned abortion is not true. Oh, um, not true. The mantra that you know certain states have banned abortion is also not true, um, and in fact, many of the states will have abortion laws like most of Europe. Aside from Britain and the Netherlands, which have got particularly, yeah, liberal, I, I think I Abortion make it pretty much impossible. But it's it, it, here's the point. I mean, what do you? Do? They'll make some kinds of abortion yeah. impossible. They won't make all abortion yeah. possible.
0: But it, the, the thing is, is it, isn't it? A, isn't it something which really ought to be discussed rationally rather than emotionally? If we want to have the, or well, right can answer. anything
1: be discussed rationally well, it anymore? It can be.
0: Can it? I, well, that was the point of. There was but the what other, was the thing. last? That, Russian... that was the other the other point. Am I putting this? I thought, okay, all you people who say that that uh, that, that I'm uh, I'm a hateful uh, reactionary, devil you
1: know, incarnate, who, to, who,
0: who, who who wants to, um, uh, to to trample on the rights of women. Uh, here they are confronted with somebody who's the opposite of what they think I am saying pretty much the same as I do mm. that, that, that uh, there's something seriously worrying about taking the life of, a, of an unborn baby yes. and that there ought to be something seriously worrying about it and you don't have to be a reactionary monster to believe this. Yes. I, I think that might be the start of reasoned argument once people re- realise that. Yes,
1: but I, I suspect it would be up against such a wall of fug for want of a better word. I mean, I was rather amused by Piers Morgan's observation at the weekend where he said, isn't it funny how everybody seems to have rediscovered the word woman? Yeah. Because, well, yeah, I, you, you know, I know... I know where we're going. Yeah, because the You're left... Stamerland Starmerland here. Well, Starmerland, who is, you know, but all and many of the people who are championing, you know, whatever the opposite is to what happened at the Supreme Court, last week couldn't tell you what a woman was. It's, you're, you're, you're demanding consistency yes I know in, I your, in your opponents I shouldn't which is, Shocking. is only get you into <laughs> the most terrible trouble as ever Peter great to see you thank you very Likewise. much indeed Peter Hitchens uh, every Sunday in the Mail on Sunday although now and occasionally during the week as well in fact indeed, we didn't get yeah. to that that great piece you wrote uh, we'll do that perhaps next time uh, we'll take some calls this is Talk TV Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got lots of great uh, tweets coming. I must read a few of them to you before we don't uh, get too far past them. Angela says this, we sold a car to a prince from Tanzania, or so he said. He turned up with £20,000 in a briefcase. Us and our neighbour went to the bank with him as we did think it was dodgy. The car was shipped out to Africa. Well, there you go. And Jenny and Milton Keynes says yes, dodgy money if in large cash amounts, money laundering. Why not a check? The Prince's Trust shouldn't have accepted cash without evidence of provenance. Proceeds of crime acts and amends apply. Well, you would think so, um, because here's the problem. If, in fact, uh, you try to apply for a mortgage these days, there are money laundering rules which say if you can't account for every single penny of where your deposit came from, for example, if your mother-in-law decided to give you some money or if your brother decided to lend you some money or you borrowed some money from somebody else, they need to know that it's in your bank account for a long enough period so that you cannot be accused of money laundering. But bring in a million euros in cash from Qatar and just hand it over to the heirs of the throne, that's fine. Not a problem. Let's talk to Mark Bukowski, who's a branded PR expert. Because uh, talking of bags of money, uh, there was a big festival at the weekend known as Glastonbury, um, and everybody watched it. Supposedly, some people loved it, some people didn't. Um, but there were some interesting matters arising. We thought we'd get Mark on to talk about it. Mark, very good uh, after very good morning to you, I should say.
5: Hi, Mike. Good did morning, you? Indeed. Did you?
1: Were you glued to the television all weekend?
5: Uh, I, I dipped in and out uh, for acts. Uh, These days, you've heard of uh, FOMO, haven't you, Mike? I have. Fear of missing out. Yes. I've got JOMO, the joy of missing out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's as a a result of your great wisdom and age, I suspect.
5: Well, I I guess I've been to Glassbury a few times working it. So um, I think uh, the experience, if you are should we say, without the necessary passes, can not be altogether joyous. No,
1: I mean I've always said I've never been to it, but I went once interviewed Steve Lillywhite who who has only been to Glassbury once and that was to produce U two set. Um and he told me that he was flown in, in a helicopter, spent the night um uh with um what's the name's father Keith, trying to remember his name, and I think of doing all sorts of things, and then they helicoptered back out in the middle of the night, five o'clock in the morning. And I thought that's about the only way I would ever go.
5: Well, that, that's the way to do it. The, the, the thing about the BBC is they just cover the main stages. And actually, in truth, Glastonbury is an incredible experience, particularly if you're young. You make amazing memories. But it's it's full of really um, amazing stages, amazing events, which can't really be shown on the on the TV. Mm. A bit like uh, Paul McCartney's uh, praise of uh, Johnny Depp. I yes. mean, it's just showing the acts. And any time there's anything political, and it is very political, um, many people want to make a point, it's sort of edited out. Um, even the uh, infamous um, Little Amal, this enormous puppet that's been walking across the world. I mean, the sort of journalism around it was shocking, really, to explain, you know, what it's been doing, and what it's doing. Right. It was more or less something that you would expect from play schools circa 1976. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, you, you never, on the TV, you never truly get the depth and the enormity and the incredible sort of uh, force of humanity that descend on it and, and have a great time.
1: Although Richard Bacon didn't quite see it like that. I know you saw his tweet at the weekend, but he said, nobody tells you how terrible Glastonbury actually is. Looks great on TV. When you get there, it's ugly, it's ghastly, there's too many people and it's all full of old white people.
5: I mean, it is. It's a, a, a middle class festival. No matter that Kendrick Ramar making incredible statements, you know, you, you struggle to find many people of ethnic diversity, you know, I think they say. Uh, and, and and God forbid it rains. I mean, in, in 1997, I was working it and um, it was an experience one could own to the mud uh, emanated from all sorts of places mixed up with bodily feces it was just oh, terrible I remember so, that
1: I remember I was I remember running yeah. those pictures in the papers it was ghastly wasn't it, it was
5: like Passchendaele, mm. you know I mean it's just <laughs> with just, with, sand.
1: Yeah, with Passchendaele with with people from putney can't imagine any worse um but that well, was people, the thing people
5: just People queue up for—I mean, queue up for everything—and you know it, it is—and you know I, I'd hate to see the site today because it'll just of a huge battlefield. It'll be ugly, and poor people take weeks and weeks and weeks to clean up. Yeah. Um, so anybody with those sort of values that. Um, you know, of Greta Thunberg probably don't um, preach them when they're uh, leaving their tents behind. Well, I'm told
1: this season as well that all the electric vehicles were being charged by diesel generators, which, of course, is now par for the course. So, um, you know, so much for your carbon footprint. But the one thing I did want to ask you about was what your theory is, because everybody's got a theory on what happened to Paul McCartney's um, sort of playback set, because the iPlayer didn't have it until about 24 hours later. My contention is that... um, There was some kind of row going on because they don't normally take that long to turn it around. First of all, they didn't put it out live um, because perhaps they feared that it wouldn't be as good as they wanted it to be or something. But I know that some bands and some artists will demand to see what you're putting out before you put it out. And I wonder whether having done that sort of incredible video, uh, AI kind of duet with John Lennon, somebody in Paul McCartney's management went, this is a bit, you know, this is worth quite a few quid. Are you sure you want to put it out free uh, on the BBC iPlayer?
5: I mean, if you think the Diana is set, if you're watching Diana Ross, there was no close-ups of her. I mean, there are a lot of demands placed on artists. And yes, um, when, when you're an icon like um, McCartney, you can call the shots. So I dare say that it was poured over, um, both technically and rights issues. Uh, Apple are an incredibly powerful organisation, you know, who, who preside over some of the richest... Um, Uh, IP uh, known to man. Um, But, you know, everybody's very careful about their image uh, now. Everybody's very, very careful about their image and uh, how it's projected. And I think if you looked at certain algorithms in Twitter and social media today, people were just saying that perhaps Paul McCartney, although he had his energy and incredible stamina and, you know, he gave it all, you know, his voice isn't what it was. No, it's not. yeah McCartney, uh, you know, you know uh, uh, nor is, nor is Diana. But these are spectacles you have to deliver um, and you have to deliver on the hype. And for anybody who was there, it was probably a fantastic Oh, I think so. Because I mean, I think two and, and, and a half, the half hours... the sound is much better. The but, sound but, is much better live than obviously can be transmitted yeah. by, by the BBC.
1: Yeah, and also, two, I mean, two and a half hours of a live show is, is a long time to be standing um, in front of a stage, watching every single second of it without being occasionally distracted. And some of the quieter moments, I didn't watch all of it, like you, but some of the quieter moments, you probably would have been standing there thinking... I've been here for three days, and you know I've taken too many drugs, and you know I'm not really sure what's going on. But I'm just going to stay here. But I can't really do anything, and that's kind of what a lot of them look like.
5: Well, I mean, pe- people <laughs> get their kicks in whichever way they want to do hallucinogenic.
1: Hey, Saras, listen, I'm not, know? I'm not, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that's what it looked like. No, no.
5: Well, I'm sure. I mean, you've you've got to be there, really, to get the vibe, you know. And, of course, there are certain people who are lost in uh, clasperry trance, as we call it. Um, But uh, at the end of the day, I think it's remarkable that a man in his 80th year, um, his ninth decade, can actually do what he's doing. Oh, for sure. Um, It is phenomenal. Um, But then again, how does it project after the event, Mm. not to the people? That's why lots of people – I think Live Aid – Uh, The first Live Aid um, back in 86, whenever it was, uh, many of that footage wasn't released for years, and and some of that footage has never been released um, because people do it for that moment, for that crowd. They don't expect it to be poured over for decades. Um, because you see a band and they're actually on fire one night. You go to see them in another town on another night, and yeah. it's a really dull performance. That, no, you're absolutely right. Life.
1: And I'm certainly not. I'm, again, I'm not being critical of. I'm being critical, really, of the BBC for having you know hundreds of people down there and not turning around quicker than they did, because it seems to me that that was their job, um, and they and they failed.
5: For glitches, um, there was, and I think that is due to the fact that possibly they don't have as many people. The broadcasting of that event is a huge undertaking. I'm not talking about the thousands of liggers with various wristbands on that perhaps don't deserve to be. They're friends and friends of sort of BBC people who are there. Right. Um, uh, but it, it is a remarkable event to cover off because it's so vast. As I said previously, you know, curation is only left to the four or five main stages and uh, and I think that um, some of the presenters this year lacked some of the sort of class of someone like Mark Ratcliffe, and I know about yeah. Martin Laverne, her death of her mother, but I mean, someone like Joe Wiley really does root it. And the Jack Saunders guy seems to be, you know, up and coming and, and pretty good. But it, 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 to, to make it interesting. Yeah, but with red hair. Um, you know, it, it's tough. It, it, it's a tough gig because people don't do live anymore. Yeah. The BBC thrived on it on a Saturday night. they rather not do it now, and it's easier to do as live.
1: Yes, which is a pity, really. But listen, Mark, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Mark Bukowski there, and PR expert on uh, the weekend of Glastonbury. Uh, thank God it's over, I think is what I can say. Um, but if you liked it, good luck to you. I just think the BBC waste even more money than they should. This is
3: Talk TV. Talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate, the independent republic of Mike Graham. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. <laughs>
1: Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the home of Common Sense, the place where, of course, you come not only for uh, infotainment, but you come for entertainment and you come for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We've already made our way into the afternoon. It's five past midday already on day one. Luckily, nobody else has gone on strike yet, just the barristers today. So I'm afraid if you're up for common assault, they won't be hearing the case, so you can rest easy until the next time. But apparently they're going to be striking every week one extra day so two days next week three days a week after that four days a week after that and then five days a week after that i just had jenny on uh, who was very irate because her husband's embarrassed she said i've got it completely wrong uh, and i should be supporting them well i don't support strikes generally speaking i don't support teachers strikes either they're talking about doing that and coming up in this hour uh, we're going to be talking to molly kingsley and liz cole for us for them uh, who have been of course campaigning uh, for children in our schools because nobody else has been We've got kids who basically have not been to school for about two years. They're back now, but they are missing a part of their education, missing a part of their socialisation, missing a part of the life that they should have had. And there's still plenty of people who are telling me that they see their children have changed and they haven't changed back yet to normal. So we'll talk about that uh, coming up. We'll also take more of your calls. We'll also talk to Simon Calder because there is a bit more travel chaos on the way. People have uh, been flying into Manchester Airport today saying they've been waiting two hours to get through customs and immigration. Oh, British Airways are going to be announcing their strike dates as well, which I'm not looking forward to. because I'm supposed to be going holiday for the first time in three years with British Airways, believe it or not. Anyway, never mind all that. Uh, we are here. This is the Independent Republic Mike Graham. It's time to say hello to Molly and Liz. Hi. Hi. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Independent Thank Republic. Thanks for coming in. You guys are a bit busy at the moment, I hear.
4: A little bit busy, yes. So yeah.
1: you've got a new book out. I've got The Children's Inquiry, is what it's called. I think we might have a little picture of what it looks like. So, um, Molly, tell us about The Children's Inquiry. Tell us what it's about and what, uh, what when it's coming out.
4: Yeah, of course. So it's coming out on Thursday, which is very okay. exciting. Um, and really what it is, is our attempt... To make sure that what we have seen and learned and been told in the two years since we co-founded us for them um, becomes a matter of public record. Mm. So, you know, I think as you you just said, Mike, in your introduction, you know, the kids have been treated pretty appallingly, and yeah. to an extent, actually, it's still ongoing. And it's really our attempt to make sure that we can't just brush over mm. what happened to them.
1: Is it still ongoing, Liz? I mean, our kids. I mean, my kids. Have always been sort of slightly rebellious, funnily enough. Um, but I, I don't think they're being forced to do anything at the moment, are they?
6: No, I think you know many of the restrictions have now eased off. Mm. But I think that doesn't mean to say that the impacts of this no, last of two years have have dissipated. Um, and I think we're now seeing, unfortunately, the you know the effects all yeah. too clearly on you know children's mental health, on their physical health, and obviously on their education mm. um, as well. So. Um, you know, we're really, really keen that this book, as Molly said, puts on the record just how severe some of these impacts have been. And there does seem to be a desire from many people to kind of revise and rewrite history as if yeah. none of this ever happened.
1: Well, there is a bit of that, isn't there, going on? Um, because when you see the government ministers variously saying things like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have shut the borders, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't have shut the schools, you know, no. And it's all like as if it wasn't massively disruptive to everybody's lives. I mean, I still remember the first lockdown where the first eight weeks I was working in London and my kids live in Sussex, I didn't see them because we all kind of took a collective decision as a family that if I was working in London, which might have been, you know, the hotbed of some horrible ghastly new disease which was going to make people drop down dead in the street, maybe I shouldn't go to Sussex and take it with me. And I also thought at one point, maybe I won't be able to get back. Maybe there'll be a roadblock. I mean, it was insane, wasn't it?
4: It was very extreme, and I think what we saw during the pandemic was that kids were totally... I mean, it wasn't even sidelined. They just weren't considered in decisions. And I think when we talk about it being ongoing all of those weaknesses are still there like Mm. nothing has been corrected and you know actually you mentioned the strikes you know we're about to go into a situation where perhaps we've well we've certainly got rail strikes Mm. we might have all kinds of other strikes and again it will be the kids that lose out because they don't have a voice they've got no one representing their interests.
1: That's right well we've had this week or last week I think with the rail strikes children supposedly doing A-levels doing other GCSEs not being able to get on trains to get to school I mean it's incredible isn't it?
6: It is incredible and I think it's, it really characterises what's happened throughout the, the pandemic whereby adults couldn't get together to sort out their differences and actually put children at the top of mm. the agenda. Um, and I think this is another example of that because really our children should be the priority in, in society
1: yeah.
6: um, and we have to try to start putting them first and you know, put this sort of bickering to one side, mm. I think.
1: And when you formed us for them, Molly... Um, Tell us a bit about how that happened and, and how you kind of came to be the the campaigners for for this outfit.
4: Um, yeah, we met on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, Twitter actually was quite a
1: place in them. If it hadn't it been for Twitter, I wonder actually what would have been what it would have been like.
4: Well, it's amazing because all these people we had all these new Twitter friends, and actually, mm. you know, as as the pandemic sort of seized and died down, we actually got mm. to meet them, including people like you. And yeah. it's been so, you know, it's but yeah, we met we. Um, both just felt and with our third co-founder christine brash as well we felt very strongly that kids just hadn't been considered in this decision making mm. so it was in a sort of build-up it was around six weeks into the first school closures um and we just got talking in the in the comments to mm. a post on twitter and decided i think i've still got the text from liz actually yeah, should we launch a campaign yeah. yeah why not how hard can that be <laughs> right. and obviously we didn't i mean did really you know. find
1: liz that there were some parents who weren't with you because i know that um once the school started to go back and people were asked to wear masks and things I mean I was astonished to see that a lot of parents were telling me that they'd go to the school and there'd be parents outside wearing masks and sort of staring at people who weren't wearing them looking at kids who weren't wearing them and it was quite a divisive time wasn't it? It was very divisive
6: and certainly for quite a long time we were subject to quite a lot of criticism Mm. honestly for for our stance but as time's gone by I think you know more and more people have recognized just how detrimental Uh, um the school closures in particular and other measures have been but it was very difficult to be the ones that were sticking your head on the above the well I think
1: we all hear it when we were talk radio um Julia and myself and others you know all the things that we asked about turn out that we should have been asking about them. And most of the things that we said weren't necessary turn out not to have been necessary. And yet we're supposed to just now go, oh, well, let's just carry on then. Let's just get on with it.
4: I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think particularly with the kids, you know, we keep using this phrase. It was not only predictable, Mm. it was predicted. Yeah. And, you know, it's great that Nadim has come on, you know, apologised for that. But actually, what does that mean? You know, Mm. what's an apology without any promise that they wouldn 't do it again it's, right. it doesn 't mean much no. so
1: so what 's the book actually for in your in your view and, you know you 've decided to write a book you obviously had to think about how to structure it and all of that so so tell us a bit about that
4: I mean I think it 's twofold. I think the first is as I said, to set out what we 've seen and learned, and also actually our perception of the really quite serious errors in policy making mm. and safeguarding, which has led to these impacts on yeah. kids and I think stemming from that. The second thing, which is really important, is to try and set out a bit of a vision of how we might do children better in yes, politics.
1: Right, because so many schools have so many different outcomes as well, don't they? And I think a lot of people would say probably that schools with with you know kids from more underprivileged backgrounds have probably done worse because you know it's all right if you're living in a nice little you know mansion in Putney and you're working from home with your kids in the garden and running around and they've got their little iPads, but not if you're living in some council estate you know, in, in, I don't know, Streatham.
6: Yeah, and I think it was a huge amount of inequity um, that we saw throughout the pandemic, particularly during the period of, you know, so-called remote learning, Mm. which for many children was, was anything but learning you know not only could many children not access it um, but some children didn't have access to the technology right. and even where you did have access to that technology that is not the way that children actually learn so it was an incredibly stressful period mm. um for many children and families
1: well an awful lot of kids as well if you were say a primary school you know you've only been around for six or seven years and two of those years you've basically done nothing
4: well, I think that's exactly right. And actually, I, you know, we were lucky. So my kids were at primary school. They were very young, the little one, when mm. lockdown began. And actually, you know, we were the lucky ones. And we had a garden and they had access to a computer. It was a disaster, Mike, an absolute yeah. disaster. And it was so bad. for The little one was four. Mm. And it was so destructive actually and so negative that we just aborted it after right. a few weeks we just thought this is a really unpleasant experiment and not something we right. should be doing with and actually you know the old one who was what six seven at the time was expected to sit in front of this computer yeah. for hours and these were the lucky kids mm. and even i would say for those children it was not a positive experience no
1: because no, also most parents even the most enlightened are not that good at looking after your children you know if they should be at school 24-7, you just, you can't do it, can you? Because presumably you also have to do work as well if you're um, a working mother or a working father.
6: Yeah, absolutely, and I think the strain on many families was, was immense, so that yeah. whole domestic environment became became fraught oh. um, for so many people. Right. Um, you know, but I think that actually it's something that we, want, we don't want to see this repeated, and I think, again, that's one of the objectives of writing this book, is we don't necessarily see sufficient enough acknowledgement that this was a disaster right. and it cannot be repeated that yes. actually schools shouldn't have closed um and they shouldn't close again um you know they should be treated as the essential infrastructure which actually they are yeah
1: and i will say as well they shouldn't be penalized for being taken out of school or they've sort of, you know net zero tolerance on on kids not appearing for school and i said to so my kids, I said, well, like, you can tell them from me. You know, when it gets up to the number of days you didn't go in because they told you not to come in, then we can have that conversation. But tell us a bit about writing a book together, because that's never easy. I mean, how, how did you work out who did what?
4: I think we got less organised as it went on, didn't we? So we started with a plan, <laughs> right. and then the plan fell apart right. as we got near and so near. So you didn't, like,
1: the the do one chapter each or something like that?
4: Well, actually, we did We did one chapter like that, and like, it was a disaster. Right. Think, wasn't it? So then we just sort of went on for two weeks on one. Okay. So no, we, it was... Genuinely fifty-fifty, wasn't it? And we sort of did a thousand words and a thousand words and a yeah. thousand words. And
1: and are you hoping to present this to like the inquiry whenever it does finally come? I'm I'm pretty sure Boris Johnson would rather it didn't ever come. He will just keep <laughs> going around the world until you know he's fine, finally you know got nowhere else left to go. But when is the inquiry? Do you know?
4: Oh, half a decade away. I mean, yeah. they're, they're very quiet. I think the earliest I'd heard was 2025. So I mean, useless That's for ridiculous. children. And even if they prioritise kids, I'd heard a rumour that we're going to put mm. kids to the front, which is fantastic. But it's going to be too late for this cohort of kids. So yeah. no, we're going to send a copy to Lady Hallett okay. and the legal team. And, Good.
6: Yep.
1: All right. Well, we'll do everything we can to publicise it. Coming mm-hmm. out on Thursday, did you say?
6: Thursday, yeah, the 30th of right. June, Well, congratulations. Yeah. Oh, You're now you so
1: officially much. authors as well. Yeah. So you can claim mm. that. Well done. Uh, so Molly Kingsley, Liz Cole, Us for Them. The book's called The Children's Inquiry, How the State and Society Failed the Young during the pandemic uh, it will be available soon we'll be doing lots on it i'm sure uh, as time goes on uh, thanks guys for coming in uh, coming up we're going to talk to simon calder apparently people are fighting at the airports now great isn't it this is talk tv
3: talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio